Let's now turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 12, verses 54 to 59. Luke 12, 54, discerning the times. And he was also saying to the multitudes, When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even, on your own initiative, judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge, and the judge turn you over to the constable, and the constable throw you into prison. I say to you, you shall not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to be with us as we contemplate what these words mean. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to know, and grant us the discernment that we need to live our Christian life. Grant us discernment. Help us to be able to analyze the times according to your word, to understand and to judge properly. And may we do so for our benefit, for our maturity, for our sanctification, and help others to grow in the faith, and even those who are lost to come to faith in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, well, Jesus is continuing to address why he's coming to the earth, and he's addressing the multitudes, as it says in verse 54. Not only did he tell the multitudes that he came to kindle fire on the earth, verse 49, to cause division between family members on the basis of faith. Whether one has faith or does not have faith, he came to bring that kind of division. But in continuing with this theme of division or discernment, judgment, he now says to the multitudes the following. He gives them two illustrations, one from weather in verse 54 and 55, and then the other in verses 58 to 59 in the law court. And in the middle is the concentration. The basic point he wants to make is found in verses 56 and 57, which we've said is discerning the times. He says in 56, You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? That's the center. That's the lesson he is teaching. So let's look at the first illustration. That's in verses 54 to 55. He addresses the multitudes, the crowds of the people assembling all around him. He directs his words to them that they might be a discerning group, not a naive and gullible group, but a discerning group. So when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say a shower is coming. And so it turns out. In the land of Israel, to the west of the land, was the Mediterranean Sea. So naturally, if they saw clouds coming from the sea, and they were dark clouds, they would expect rain. And then, in verse 55, he says, And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, It will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. Because from in the south and in the southeast was the desert, and the hot air of the desert and the wind of the desert would come and bring um, warm climate and warm weather to that region. So this was known and commonly understood. They could figure this out. It was easy. So 
he says, you know how to analyze or judge these kinds of physical things. You see what's going on all around you and you make a decision accordingly. You know it's going to rain or you know it's going to be hot. You make your decisions accordingly. You look around you and you analyze that, the physical material world, but what about the spiritual world? Why don't you bridge the gap and realize that the unseen spiritual world is more important than the physical world? Isn't it more important to know what kind of cataclysmic uh, spiritual things are going to happen? More important than what kind of cataclysmic physical things? The spiritual will bring more upheaval forever, for all eternity, than whatever the winds can do and whatever the clouds can do. Shouldn't we be more concerned about spiritual winds, spiritual heat, spiritual cataclysms? Shouldn't we be more concerned about spiritual things? That's the bridge he's making between the physical and the spiritual. And because he knows that all of us, we are prone to fixating our minds on the physical rather than the unphysical, spiritual, unseen world, he calls us out on it. He says in 56, it's not just his contemporaries, but it's all of us. We, and by human nature, we are just like the multitudes. So he says in 56, you hypocrites, you hypocrites. So he cuts to the chase. He doesn't pull any punches and he directs his words straight at the root of the problem. What's more important, the physical or the spiritual? So he says, you hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not analyze this present time? What's wrong with you? You are hypocrites. You give the impression that you are wise, discerning, intelligent. You've got the weather figured out. And you can figure out what you need to do before the weather changes. You can figure that out, but you are a hypocrite. You give the impression you're wise, you're smart, you're sophisticated, but you're really not. Because you don't care about what's really important. Your soul is more important. Your soul is more important than your body. Because your soul, with your body, will live for all eternity, either in heaven or in hell either with the Lord or with Satan. There's either eternal life or eternal punishment. And you don't have that figured out? Don't you know what's happening all around you in the world, in the culture, in the society all around you? Haven't you figured out what's actually happening and how people are seizing you, they are enticing you, they're entrapping you, they're finding ways, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they're finding ways to suck you in to mislead you, to deceive you, and to drag you down with them into hell? 57. And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? On your own initiative. Why don't you have resolve? Why are, are you not determined with strong conviction on your own initiative? Why don't you do that? Why are you letting the winds and the waves of the people of the world control you, why don't you have a backbone? Why don't you stand strong? Why don't you have courage? Why is it that you're easily swayed this way or that way? You don't, on your own initiative, judge what is right. You know what's right and what's wrong with the weather, but why don't you know what's wrong or what's right with spiritual matters? 
because that lasts forever. That has to do with God himself. That has to do with your own soul. It has to do with the souls of men. It has to do with where one spends all eternity. And you should judge what is right. You should discern, make a distinction between what's right and what's wrong. Everything that people say, everything the world says is not right. And you have to have discernment to be able to wade through the mess, to wade through the chaos and the confusion, wade through all of the trickery of men and the wild waves of doctrine, false doctrine. You need to be able to do that. And he confronts us by saying, why do you not even on your own initiative do that? You think you're brilliant, you think you're sophisticated, you think you have it all figured out, but you really don't. You cannot do this on your own initiative. You don't do it on your own initiative. Then another illustration, 58 and 59. For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there, make an effort to settle with him in order that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the constable and the constable throw you into prison. I say to you, you shall not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. Who then wants to pay the very last cent and give up all of their earnings, all of their savings, all of their inheritance and bring ruin to themselves personally and also to their family? and even to their friends who might help them. Who wants to do that? He says, don't you think ahead, and don't you know the consequences, that if you go to this lawsuit with your opponent, and it doesn't work out because you haven't figured out that one plus one equals two, and then this and that will happen to me because I have a flimsy case. I'm not going to be able to win. Or there's an iffy chance. It's 50-50. I may not win. Haven't you figured out that it's better to settle outside of court and settle whatever you need to settle outside of court than go in court and squander all of your money and lose it all? Because you, you know you don't have a good chance of winning. You don't have a good case. So you haven't figured that out? Why don't you figure it out? Why don't you figure out that if you take step number one, then you need to t take step two, three, four, five, and where you're actually headed. And by the time you get to step 10 in this whole process, you need to be absolutely convinced that you will win with proper discernment. And if you don't have that, then back off and settle outside of court. That's better, that's wise. You'll spare yourself, you'll spare your family, you'll spare all the heartache, anxiety, and misery of going through a court case that eventually you will lose. So you should have discernment. Figure it out. Don't be so blind or short-sighted that you don't look at the consequences. Look at the result, the likely result, and don't get into trouble. Don't get into trouble because you will have to pay the very last cent. Okay, now let's focus on a couple of major topics from this. Of course, the first and major topic is judgment, discernment. That we will address in just a moment. But the first one I'd like to address is what he said in verse 56. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in human flesh. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
Jesus possessed a divine nature and he was flesh. He had a human nature without sin. John 1, 1 and 1, 14. 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. So the epitome, the prime example of love is Jesus Christ himself. So if he was a prime example of love, Notice it says in verse 56, you hypocrites. Jesus called sinners or people who needed to repent of their sins, he called them hypocrites. He even starts it that way before he gets to his point. You hypocrites. He gets their attention and calls them what they really are. Okay. If loving Jesus could call people hypocrites. You, you've heard many people, many critics of those Christians who are courageous and who call out sin. They will say, that's unloving. You should not call out sin. You should not speak against anybody in public. Don't call out anybody's name. Don't mention names. They say all this to silence those who are calling for repentance. They use those tactics to silence Christians who are courageous and who speak out. And they say also, why are you calling so-and-so a name? That's name-calling, and that's unloving, that's unbiblical, it's not Christ-like. We've heard this, I'm sure, many times. People say that. But actually, they are the ones who are unloving, and they are the ones who don't know Jesus as the Bible describes him. A loving Jesus called the sinners who needed to repent hypocrites. And if Jesus did so, we should so. We should do so also. We should do the same. Because that's who they really are. It does not help to call a hypocrite a swell fellow. It does not help to call a hypocrite a saint. It does not help to call a hypocrite a son of God, that he's going to heaven. It does not help to do that. We are sugarcoating and masquerading his true nature. And it doesn't help the hypocrite, and it doesn't help the people who know that hypocrite. So therefore, we need to call a hypocrite a hypocrite. A fool, a fool. So let's illustrate this with some other passages of Scripture. And that will be the first set of references. Luke 12, 20. Whatever the name is, and we'll see that there are a few names in these verses. Luke 12, 20, we see God calling a fool a fool. 1220. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? God did not sin when he called the fool a fool. Luke 13.32 This is Jesus. Luke 13.32 And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Well, who is that fox? According to verse 31, it is Herod. Herod the king, Herod the king is called that fox by Jesus himself. And what is a fox? That's not a compliment. A fox is a sneaky, deceptive creature that seizes on the prey, that seizes on innocent victims, helpless victims. And he characterizes Herod like that, that fox. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 36. I'll begin at, at verse 35. 
One of the critics of the Apostle Paul on the subject of resurrection says, 1535, but someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Now Paul knows that the skeptic is asking this in presumption, in pride. So he says in 36, you fool, that which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, so forth. He answers the critic, he answers the specific question, but before he does, he accuses him of being a fool. He says, you fool. Your Bibles will likely, in some of these references, have an exclamation right after you fool. The apostle did that there. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verse 1. The Galatians were adopting a, a different gospel. They were wayward and being tossed here and there by waves and winds of doctrine. And in Galatians 3 1, he says to them, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Galatians 3, 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He calls them foolish. James chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 20. In this case, these people were thinking that... You can say you have faith, but you don't need to have any fruit or good works after you claim to have faith. So, 2.20, James 2.20, he says, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? He calls these people, you foolish fellow, or you foolish man. James 4, verse 4, James 4, 4. In this case, they are, have conflict with each other. They're divisive and conflictive with each other. And so he says in verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There, he calls them adulteresses. He's calling the whole group of them the assembly. <laughs> that is receiving James' letter, he calls them all adulteresses and says that they are seeking to be friends of the world. James 4 and verse 8, 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Note with some of these references that Jesus and the apostles are saying, you sinners, you hypocrites, you double-minded, you adulteresses. He's not being, in this Christian culture of today, nice. He's not being nice. He's calling it as it is. He's telling them the truth that they need to hear. Further, Jude 12. Jude 12, verses, uh, verses 12 and 13. Jude also describing... Heretics, he says. These men, Jude 12, these men are those who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. He heaps up names that describe their true character. 
he heaps up names in verses 12 and 13. Further, Jesus, back to our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. There was a Canaanite woman who approached Christ with a request. And this is a familiar passage, but remember, it says in Matthew 15, 26. 15, 26. And he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. He calls the Gentiles dogs, and the children, the Jews. He calls the Jews children, and the Gentiles dogs. And he didn't mean cute little puppy. That's not what he meant. It's not good to give the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, because the dogs that would receive the crumbs and the leftovers are not the cute and cuddly kind. They'd be the kind that would be the stray dogs that are on the streets. Now, in the U.S., in many places, there, we don't find stray dogs on the street. But in other countries, they're everywhere. And you just throw your garbage out, and the stray dogs come and eat them up. All, all your leftovers and, and rubbish. Okay, and then one more example is Acts 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 10. Here is an incident where Elymas the magician, he seeks to undermine the preaching of the gospel when Paul was preaching. So, we'll start at Acts 13, verse 9. 13, 9. This is Paul the Apostle, or Saul. He is confronting Elymas, who's undermining the gospel. So, 13, 9. Acts 13, 9. But Saul, who was also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And then he pronounces a curse on him and makes him blind. He makes the false teacher blind. Okay? Did Paul sin with this? I don't think any of these passages are sinful assertions. But notice quite clearly, Luke is telling us about Paul himself that there is no way he sinned when he did this. Verse 9 says, Filled with the Holy Spirit. While he was filled with the Holy Spirit and with great courage, because it says he fixed his gaze upon him. His eyes didn't wander here or there. He didn't turn around. He didn't say it in a whisper. He fixed his gaze straight upon the eyes of the false teacher and then said, you, I'm not talking about somebody else, I'm talking about you, which he repeats a few times. You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? He describes him with words and adjective, nouns and adjectives that describe the false teacher's true character without sin. There are many other examples of the Bible, in the Bible of prophets and apostles using correct terminology, naming the false teachers, sometimes naming them by their personal names, like we know about Elymas the magician here, and elsewhere uh, calling them descriptive names that describe their true character, whether calling them dogs or calling them hogs, calling them fools, calling them sons of the devil, enemies, adulteresses, double-minded, sinners, whatever it takes to describe their true character in their sinful condition.
Okay, the next major point I'd like to make with some cross-references has to do with our need to judge, our need to discern, our need to analyze, our need to make a distinction, however you want to describe it. We need to know the difference between good and evil, someone who is with Christ and someone who is with the devil, who, someone in the light and somebody in the darkness. We have to know how to do that. We need to do it, and we need to know how to do it. Some references that support that notion. First is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, verse 1. Matthew 7, 1 to 6. Do not judge, lest you be judged yourselves, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your, your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. All right, well, Jesus warns us and tells us not to judge, or else we might be judged. Now, when he said that, he did not mean, do not judge at all. He meant, do not judge hypocritically. If you judge hypocritically somebody else, you better watch out, because somebody else will use that same tactic against you. Okay? So, that's what he says in verse 2. In the way you judge, you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it shall be measured to you. Your, your accused might accuse you with the way that you accused him. So you better watch out. And what you need to do, verse 3, you cannot take the speck out of your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. So what should you do? Don't judge at all. Is it an absolute statement? There is no proper context to judge? No. Verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite. The problem is hypocrisy. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, so if somebody has the sin of drunkenness, and let's say that you notice drunkenness in your friend, but your friend gets drunk, let's say, once a month, and you get drunk once a week, okay? So you've got a log, and he's got a speck. And if you notice that he got drunk that one time in the month, and you said something to him, hey, what are you doing? You look like a fool. You said all kinds of nasty things. You, know, you, you made a fool of yourself in front of everybody. Then he would well say, well, yeah, but you do that every week, man. So what does Jesus say? First, repent of your own log. That is, you get drunk every week, so quit doing that. Repent of that. And after you repent of that, and while you're seeking to repent of that, and seeking the grace of God to overcome that, then, while you see clearly enough, then go help your friend who gets drunk once a month. That's what he meant. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly enough to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not saying we shouldn't confront sin. He's saying do it in the right way. Don't be a hypocrite. And then further, verse 6, 
Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, this is also a command. We need to know what is holy, what's unholy. We need to know what is a pearl and what is a common rock, right? We need to have discernment. So he's expecting us to use discernment, judgment. Not only that, but we need to know who the dogs are and who the swine are. He mentions those. Who are the dogs so that I should not give what is holy to dogs? Who are the swine so that I should not give my pearls to the swine? That takes judgment. It takes discernment. You have to figure that out. Which proves in context that Jesus did not mean that there is no case, absolutely, 100% of the time, that we can never use judgment, discernment, uh, analysis. He's not saying that. He's saying, do it in the right way. And when you do, do it according to the Scriptures. Continue, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Don't we need to judge? What is the broad way? What's the narrow gate? What's the way of life? And what's the way of death? Don't we need to figure that out? Death and destruction? 15. Beware of the false prophets. That's the command. Beware. That takes discernment to beware. We need to know who a true prophet is and a false one. False prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, and the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. That means we need to figure out which people are grapes and figs, and which people are thorns and thistles. We have to figure out. We need to know the difference between these different bushes and trees. And he says, So then you will know them by their fruits. Verse 20. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Which means we need, to know, we need to know the difference between a law keeper and a law breaker. Because we should not be in the category of law breakers or lawless ones. We need to know if we're doing it, we need to know if others are doing it, and be on the right side. John chapter 15, verse 8. John 15, verse 8. Jesus furthermore says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It takes proof. We have to have proof. Show forth proof. And how is God the Father glorified? That you bear much fruit. Don't bear a little fruit. Don't just bear one apple on the tree. Bear a hundred or two hundred apples on the tree. Not just one. Bear much fruit and then distinctively, clearly, conspicuously, everybody will know, okay, that is a good apple tree, and it's bearing much fruit. That's not a rotten tree. It's not a dead tree. It's not a thorn bush. It's an apple tree. That's what he's saying. If we bear much fruit, and so prove to be his disciples. Acts chapter 20. 
Now, the reality of infiltra infiltration or deception in the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. For three years, he admonished with tears, each one of them, with tears, warned them and told them to be on the alert night and day. He told them that. Why? Because after he leaves, he says, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, the flock of sheep. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, they are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. Savage wolves in sheep's clothing. They masquerade as sheep, but inwardly they're actually wolves. And he says, it's going to come in two ways. One way is they will come in among you. They are on the outside, and then they will come into your church, into your assembly. They're on the outside, and they'll look for their prey on the inside. That's one way. The other way is that some of them already exist in your midst. And he says, From among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. In a group of 50, in a group of 100, even in a group of 12 like Jesus had, there will be usually at least one, like Judas Iscariot in the disciples of 12, 12 disciples of Christ, that there will be somebody who is masquerading, that's already there, who has just not revealed himself yet. But eventually he'll reveal himself and draw away the disciples after them. Okay? Those are the two ways in which it works. 2 Timothy 3.13, the apostle says that in the last days, he says that evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. He says, evil men and impostors. These are actors, impostors, actors. They will proceed from bad to worse. They're all not of the same evil. They will get worse and worse. And they are deceiving and they are being deceived. Further, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. He calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, disguising himself as an angel of light, Satan does, so it should not surprise us if Satan's servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They will disguise themselves. They use words like apostle, prophet, disciple, believer, gospel, Christ, followers of Christ. They'll use all the phrases of the Bible, but they don't mean what the Bible means. False teachers, inevitably, they use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning, 
and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. They will use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning. The Bible doesn't mean what they say the Bible means by the words they use. And then they will use common words outside of the Bible, and you think you know what that word means, and we all know what a certain word means, but when they use it, they don't mean what you think they mean. This happens all the time. The next, the next example is Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. 5, 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. How is it then that we are going to be able to make this discernment, this judgment, this analysis of spiritual issues? By being accustomed to the word of righteousness, this word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. We need to know what's in the Bible. If we don't know what's in the Bible, how can we assess? How can we measure? How can we have a ruler or measuring stick to compare what is a true measure? How can we know what is 12 inches long if we don't know what's in the Bible as the measuring tool? We won't know if somebody is trying to hoodwink us into saying, oh, you know, yeah, this is 12 inches long. You, you bought such and such. You bought this piece of wood, this precious wood. You wanted 12 inches of it. Yeah, here's 12 inches. When actually, it's 10 and a half inches. But you wouldn't know it's 10 and a half inches if you don't know what 12 inches is. And you don't know, have a measuring stick, a ruler, to make that measurement to make sure because you are buying an expensive piece of wood or however many square feet of that wood you're buying. You need to know, and that standard is the word of righteousness, the righteous word of God. We need to know that. Uh, a few more places on discernment. Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. And where this discernment needs to be practiced. Galatians 2, verse 4. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. Paul is... He's adamant in this letter because he says there were false brethren. They call themselves brothers, but they were false brothers. And how did they act? They were secretly brought in, not conspicuously, but secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Look at all of these words. They're called false. They were brought in secretly. They sneaked in. They spy out. And they know you have liberty in Christ, but they want to make you slaves. See what they're doing. They are malicious people. And they behave in malicious ways. And they come within the church. Then we have Jude verse 4. Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. 
Those who are long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says certain persons have crept in unnoticed. They creep in. They're like creepy, crawly creatures. We don't notice them. They crept in unnoticed, unnoticed by us, by many of us, but not by God, because they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Then if you want to recognize who they are, they are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. That is, they turn the grace of God that's meant to release us from sin. They take this biblical word grace and they say, because God is gracious, we have license, licentiousness. We have a license to sin, to do whatever we want with our life. We don't need to obey God and walk in holiness. And further, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Oh yeah, yeah, we, we believe that Jesus is Lord, but you can have other lords. You can believe in other philosophies, other religions, and Christianity at the same time. You can mix and match, you can make it a hodgepodge, you can make it a mixed salad, and consume it. That's what they say. That's what they preach. So when they do that, they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation 2, our last verse. 2-2. Two, two. Jesus speaks, and he commends the Ephesians. I know your deeds, and your toil, and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. This is not a criticism, it's a commendation. It's, it's a commendation. He's encouraging them by what they've done right. And what did they do right here? Their deeds, their toil and perseverance, which includes that they could not endure, they could not tolerate Evil men. Today, toleration is a virtue. But toleration, the way the world describes it, is not a biblical virtue. It's not good to be tolerant of anything and everything. There has to be a limit. There has to be discernment and judgment. Because he says here, you cannot endure or tolerate evil men. You have to, to know if they are good men or evil men. And you put to the test, that's judgment, discernment. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. Just because they call themselves apostles does not make them an apostle. If they call themselves prophets, it doesn't make them a prophet. If they call themselves a teacher, it doesn't make themselves a teacher. We have to discern. They did that. The false apostles called themselves that, but the Ephesian church tested them and found that they were not. They were actually false apostles. If Jesus commends the church for doing that, then we should do that as the church. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.